The topic of this lecture is an examination of an absolutely remarkable book called Cosmos and History by Mircea Iliad. Iliad is probably the century's greatest historian of religious ideas, a scholar of incredible depth, breadth, insight, and compassion and understanding. Uh, this summer I read his three-volume History of Religious Ideas, and um, I cannot imagine a scholar of a broader range of understanding from the religion of Paleolithic time through Sufism, Sunnism, the Mahayana Way, Jainism, Christianity, um, Gnosticism, the whole range of uh, engagements with um, religion in various ways. In this text, he's very concerned to examine the origins of our historicist engagement in the West with linear time, how that came to be, when that began, and, and what it portends for us. He's also concerned to show its contrast, its context, that of the cyclical conceptions of time and history found in most what we might call traditional cultures cultures which are not Western, and then not only traditional cultures, but the civilizations that emerge from them outside of uh, Judeo-Christian Europe. He's not only interested in showing that context, um, one of the most fascinating features of this text is as an historian who's showing, to some extent, a linear progression. He's eager to defend the interpretation of history on nonlinear terms, which is to say, he wants to show us not only how it is that other peoples may not see time in linear terms, but why they wouldn't, and why, in fact, they may be right and we may be wrong. His strategy is largely anthropological. He exposes, uh, expostulates, and analyzes various nonlinear conceptions as they develop. It's also uh, a justificatory scheme tries to place them in their best lights and show how they function, what purpose they have. Um, and I would urge in many ways it's an attempt to have a sympathetic understanding for peoples and cultures that don't share our engagement with the past, at least in the same way that we share it, and to suggest that, in fact, our own um, understanding of history may have a short historical shelf life. One of the challenges of the text in its presentation is that it draws on, as I mentioned, a wealth of anthropological information. Uh, loads of examples are shown from cultures across time and space, uh, which are impossible to summarize and present here. So as I've mentioned previously, what I'm going to do is replace examples from primitive, traditional, and even high civilized cultures uh, of the way they engage in cyclical history with examples from our own society and culture. And one of the interesting features of Iliad's work, uh, of his argument, is that although we are a linear uh, historical culture, at the same time, we have, as it were, preserved with it, uh, underneath our linear consciousness our previous cyclical engagement. So there are plenty, in fact, of cyclical historical awarenesses, conjunctures, uh, models 
and practices and rites which inform our life even today in the advanced late 20th century West. And I'm going to draw on those examples to try and give a sense as to the justification and sense of um, cyclical history as opposed to linear history. I should point out now that the crux of Iliad's argument will hang on pragmatic issues, issues of practical concern. What are the consequences of engaging with history in a linear and historicist way? And what, on the other hand, are the consequences of failing to do that? So I want you to keep those issues, those pragmatic concerns in mind as we examine the range of cases, events, and structures that Iliad details. To sum up his view uh, briefly, the major theme of the work is what he calls archaic man, ancient man, and his place in the cosmos. And he wants to contrast that with modern man and his place in history, cosmos and history. And he states, in studying these traditional societies, one characteristic has especially struck us. It is their revolt against concrete historical time, their nostalgia for a periodic return to the mythical time of the beginning of things, to the, quote, great time. And we begin our examination with a discussion of archetypes and repetition. And here we note, traditional cultures, traditional man, gives no value to human actions or events of the external world unless they are imitations of sacred and mythic archetypes. The unique events, which we consider historical, are precisely the events with which they have the least interest and engagement. When a unique event occurs, there is desire to place it in a ritual and archetypal formula. And thus, only the sacred and celestial heavenly archetypes and the actions which imitate them are truly real. All of these actions can be reduced to rituals. And all of these rituals recreate the primordial first acts of the gods and their children, the heroes. Okay, I want to show uh, two examples of the way we do this, even to this day in the West. When someone shows a political leader shows an incredible amount of character and an integrity. Always that person, or not always, but generally that person is placed in the context of a previous archetypal hero. A politician shows great integrity, we say, X, whoever that authority is, is another Washington in his steadfast integrity. He's got the statesmanship of a Lincoln the egalitarian ethos of a Jackson, the wisdom of a Jefferson, or the prickly personality of an Adams. Okay, always we reach back to these archetypes. And we should point something out. These are, as we'll see later, archetypes in that the historical personalities in popular consciousness rarely correspond to the, in fact, actual personalities of the figures. They did the things for which they are famous, and they had those traits, but those are traits which are elevated uh, because they are archetypal heroic acts. And the other things they did are ignored and downplayed.
Today we have, uh, I've heard uh, in recent weeks, um, a similar sort of mythic archetype for uh, our present president. I've heard uh, on, on the news several times analysts saying, you know, he's another FDR in his compassion. He's another Roosevelt in his sweeping plans. He himself has modeled himself after an archetypal figure, John F. Kennedy, carrying that legacy forward. So we see that everything which we find meaningful uh, and profound, we place in an archetypal relation. Okay. This not only occurs at the uh, secular political plane, it obviously occurs in the religious plane as well. Right? The saint, the Christian saint, is one who imitates the life of Christ. Right? He's not just a figure who occurred at one particular time. He's an archetype of right behavior. He's a pattern of how we ought live our lives and think about our lives. Hence, we imitate Christ, um, and he is an example for us. In um, Mahayana Buddhist tradition, the Buddha is never an original personality. There are as many there are many different Buddhas or bodhisattvas. Each one corresponds to a particular type. And we can see in them certain common fundamental characters. And similarly in the early medieval cult of saints, the saints are clearly copies of archetypal pagan heroes. Saint George is the knight who slays the dragon. We should also find that when unique events do occur among traditional cultures, they tend to very quickly see them as uh, archetypal spots, as a breakthrough or an epiphany or hierophany in which the divine or celestial breaks through to earth. When um, Jacob has a vision of, known as Jacob's ladder, of angels going up and down, he says the spot on which his head rested is a sacred celestial spot, and he builds an altar there. It's sacred ground. As we'll see, the same thing can be said for Mount Sinai. It's the center of, it's God's mountain for the ancient Hebrews, where he communicates with his people. Not only is this true of people, as I've just suggested, it's true of territories, temples, cities. They all have celestial archetypes. They are all copies of some pattern which transcends the merely profane historical. Each ziggurat or pyramid is meant to be a copy of the cosmic mountain upon which the gods live. Right? The acropolises of ancient classical Greece are at the top of the cities, hence acropolis above the polis. Because we know the gods live on the mount, Mount Olympus. And we replicate their order here on earth. And it's for that reason that we can sort of break through. Now, in our own examples um, of the modern uh, linear religions, we can find obvious uh, analogies. All synagogues point towards Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the archetypal center of the universe because that is where God communicates with man. All mosques point towards Mecca. Mecca is where God communicated or with um, Muhammad. And it is where Muhammad uh, instituted the uh, Hajj or pilgrimage to the Kaaba. 
And similarly, we have a, uh, at least medieval Christianity had a similar orientation to Jerusalem, hence its crusades. That was the site of Golgotha, the site of the holy tree, the second holy tree, the first being the tree of good and evil, the second being holy rood, where Christ was sacrificed to atone for those original sins. We can also see it in architecture. Go to a cathedral. The most fascinating thing about a cathedral, aside from the awesome effect of uh, linearity you get from just the height of it and the way it dwarfs you, is if you could get an overhead shot, every cathedral is in the shape of a crucifix, of the cross. Now, the fascinating question about a cathedral is, where are the sacraments dispensed? Where is the altar? Well, think about the inside of the cathedral as a cross. Where is the, the body and blood of Christ? In the heart. All altars are placed directly in the heart of Christ. That archetypal relation. The church is the body of Christ. The cathedral and the altar replicate in archetypal terms that legacy, that tradition, that symbolism of a center. Another feature of archetype and repetition is the repetition of the cosmogony. The cosmogony is the creation of the world out of chaos. Right? Almost all myths have, creation myths, have the world created out of a primordial goo or chaos. Um, least so, perhaps, Judeo-Christianity, but even there, in Genesis, uh, God hovers over the deep, Tehom, uh, which is probably a cognate for Tiamat, the goddess of chaos in um, Mesopotamian religion. Similarly, then, all new buildings, all new constructions for traditional cultures are a repetition of that co cosmogony, creating order out of chaos. Order is placed in the world through these actions. And we can think of this in our own practices, the laying of cornerstones, which lay the center, the order for the building. Foundations of buildings, the christening of ships, all of which uh, note that this is no longer an assemblage of structures. This is now a seafaring vessel ready to engage in its travels and uh, travise around the world. Another example of ritual is um, the notion that all rituals have a divine model, that they all have somehow a beginning in a divine action. The rituals are always founded by gods or heroes, never by men. And we simply reenact them so that we can get back and in touch with that archetypal reality, that fundamental act of the god. Consider. What is the point of Sabbatarianism? It is literally an identification and repetition of God's activities. For six days he labored, on the seventh he rested. Insofar as we take Sabbatarianism seriously, we are repeating that action and living according to the pattern laid down not by an individual, not by a result of historical uh, development, but in illo tempore, from the beginning, from the great times, when it was first established by God himself. The Passover service is not simply commemorative. The rituals were all laid down by the heroic actions 
of Moses and the tribes. Why do the Jews eat unleavened bread? Because they did not have time to bake their bread when they were fleeing Egypt. We not, we, they don't simply commemorate the event. They say in the Passover service, we should feel as if each one of us was taken out with a strong hand from Egypt. Okay, So the notion is not so much that we're trying to remember what happened, but that we're going to relive it right here, right now. And that's not unique to Judaism. Christianity does that as well. Consider the Easter service, the passion of Christ. It's not simply a commemoration. It's a reliving. Consider Lent. Always these are patterns established by the hero, the god, the semi-god, which we, when we want to get in touch with the most ultimate reality, relive, re-experience according to a pattern laid down precisely. We drink, we take the Mass because Christ instituted it. The Easter service was instituted by Christ. For primitive man, all marriages um, and their rites recreate the hierogamy or hierogamy. Hierogamy means the uh, heros gamos, the game or play of uh, the hierarchies of the gods. And it's always a mating ritual which creates the world. Um, Uranos lays on top of Gaia, the sky on top of the earth, separated by their son Eros. The sky then is uh, placed above the earth. Uh, Tiamat and her consorts, uh, we could replicate examples forever, but we can see that we still have those rituals in our own marriage ceremonies. The throwing of rice. Why do we throw rice on a newlywed couple? It's an ancient fertility ritual. Rice symbolizes fertility. It's actually the most uh, efficient grain or foodstuff you can produce, the most fertile. And when we throw rice, we are recreating that first moment in which that first hierogamy created life and the world. The first ultimate fertility is recreated in each marriage and its rites. And finally, of course, uh, there is a repetition in the interpretation of history itself. Right? All history is mythicized to follow mythic archetypes. And whatever is not archetypal is meaningless, can't be reduced to a pattern that has sense. Thus, profane time, the historically unique, is banished from consciousness. What we focus on in historical action is the archetypal, is the pattern with which we find meaning. Now, this is not um, something which I should point out is uh, dead in the West. It's still very much alive. We can find examples not only in common rituals, but in actual historical episodes. Iliad has two, which I'd like to uh, share with you very briefly. One is uh, from a historical personage in Yugoslavian heroic poetry. Marko Kraljevec, protagonist of the Yugoslavian epic, became famous for his courage during the second half of the 14th century. His historical existence is unquestionable, and we even know the date of his death, 1394. But no sooner is Marko's historical personality received into the popular memory than it is abolished and his biography is reconstructed in accordance with the norms of myth. His mother is a vila, a fairy, just as the Greek heroes were the sons of myths, 
nymphs or naiads. His wife is also a vila. He wins her through a ruse and takes great care to hide her wings lest she find them. This is a real historical person we're talking about. Take flight and abandon him, as by the way, in certain variants of the ballad, proves to be the case after the birth of the first child. So we have an historical personality in the 14th century who no sooner is he dead than all of his unique historical activities are reduced to archetypal actions that we find in previous myths. He also shows us an example from the 20th century. Just before the last war, and here I think he means the Second World War, the Romanian folklorist Constantine Brelu had occasion to record an admirable ballad in a village in Maramuris. Its subject was a tragedy of love. The young suitor had been bewitched by a mountain fairy. And a few days before he was to be married, the, first, the fairy, driven by jealousy, had flung him from a cliff. The next day, shepherds found his body and, caught in a tree, his hat. They carried the body back to the village, and his fiancée came to meet them. Upon seeing her lover dead, she poured out a funeral lament, full of mythological illusions, a liturgical text of rustic beauty. Such was the content of the ballad. In the course of recording the variants that he was able to collect, the folklorist tried to learn the period when the tragedy had occurred. Um, he was told that it was a very old story, which had happened long ago. Pursuing his inquiries, however, he learned that the events had taken place not quite 40 years earlier. He finally even discovered that the heroine was still alive. He went to see her and heard the story from her own lips. It was a quite commonplace tragedy. One evening, her lover had slipped and fallen over a cliff. He had not died instantly. His cries had been heard by mountaineers. He had been carried to the village where he had died soon after. At the funeral, his fiancée with the other women of the village had repeated the customary ritual lamentations without the slightest allusion to the mountain fairy. Okay. So there's an attempt to, when secular profane history breaks through, reduce it to archetypal formulations. The next fundamental issue that engages the uh, cyclical conception of time is the regeneration of time. Traditional and non-Western cultures see time as, as I mentioned previously, cyclical rather than linear. In its most tra traditional and primitive basis, this is a simply uh, naturalistic awareness of certain biological rhythms. The seasons are, in fact, cyclical. They recur over and over and over again. We go from a height of, of uh, creativity and life in the spring and summer to a period of degeneration, fall and barrenness, and then a recurrence of the whole cycle over and over again. Similarly, the same thing happens within the human lifespan, from birth to maturity to old age to death to new birth. The cycle recurs over and over and over again. And it's an awareness of these biocosmic rhythms which informed the cyclical conception of time and the cyclical conception of history. And we see it with phenomena like year, new year, and cosmogony, where each new year in the traditional conception is a recreation of the world out of chaos. The Babylonians had a calendar of 360 days. At the end of those 360 days, the five additional days, or four additional days, um, were considered out of the year, which is to say that the world had reverted into chaos. And the way they marked that was by allowing Saturnalia, 
all social roles were dropped. Uh, the king was no longer an exalted figure. The peasants and serfs were no longer debased. Sexual license was granted. Riotous drinking and feasting and, quote, partying occurred. And then, on the first day of the next year, the order was reestablished when the king and queen ascended to the top of the ziggurat and had ritual sex, the hieragomi, and recreated order in the world. Every year that occurred. That has not died. Why do we have Saturnalia on New Year's Eve? Why not the night after or the night before? Again, we have seen the year has run, run its course. There is a sort of cessation of time allowing us to uh, engage in a, a formless, orderless, uh, spontaneous uh, eruption of our primordial urges, which is then followed by a rigorous return to order. That, again, is the reason we have New Year's resolutions. Because the sense is each year is a new year with new potentialities, with new possibilities. We wipe free the burden of the last year. That's over. It's gone. Yeah, it's true. I couldn't lose weight last year, but this year is going to be a different year. It's a new time. I'm definitely going to lose weight. I'm definitely going to give better lectures this year. There's no way around it. There is a belief in the continuous regeneration of time. Most, I mean, and this is a very hard doctrine for Westerners to be aware of, but most non-archetypal, non-traditional activity is in fact, most profane activity is in fact unbearable. Consider the sorts of events that we consider unique. War, famine, plague, murder, catastrophe. Consider the things that we find valuable and pleasant in our life cycles. Marriage, childbearing, maturity, success, all of which are repetitive. The former are all unique. So the goal is, as these things happen, these unique, unbearable events, a child dies, a harvest is poor. The regeneration of the world at the end of the year offers us a new beginning and banishes from our consciousness, if we were cyclicalists, the memory of the profane, the unreal, and the unbearable. Because when the past is destroyed, so are its sins and evils. All that we did wrong in the past year, that burden which we carry around in us in the sense of conscience and guilt, is vanished. We are given a clean slate to begin again. And thus, these regeneration rites are fundamentally anti-historical. They are trying to deny what we would call history. We get a sense that as the year degenerates, as the year moves, Similarly with the seasons, we see increasing degeneration. Time will be the undoing of everything. Things get old, they get weak, they get feeble. Hence, the need for a new beginning. We find that even among the classical Greeks and Romans, there was a belief in universal conflagration. What that means is the universe, which exists in time, as time bears along, gets old. It ceases to be as fertile, as productive, as, as vibrant. Therefore, when it reaches a certain point, everything burns up, everything explodes, and it begins again. A new, fresh beginning, just as spring is, represents to summer. This brings us to the topic of misfortune and history. And this is, of course, where the West is the most challenged. Because traditional and non-Western man is acutely aware that the unique 
the non-repetitive, the non-archetypal events that comprise profane history, secular history, are almost exclusively misfortunes. And I've mentioned war, disease, famine, destruction, plague. In history, as in journalism, no news is good news. Excuse me, good news is no news. Right? What is news are dramatic crisis events. This is a difficult thing to deal with. The burden of the fact that tragedies occur all the time. Unique tragedies of which we have no control. Traditional and especially non-Western man deals with this by denying the value of such events. By denying their ultimate reality. And the high cultural expression of this is the myth of eternal return, which I'll return to at some point. Uh, again, a notion of, basically it's a notion of, etern of growth, maturation, decay, conflagration, complete uh, abolition of the universe, and then beginning all over again. Well, what traditional man understands is that suffering is a normal experience. Primitive people know in a way that we don't that all life comes from death. This is a very difficult thing, not so much for Westerners to understand, but for moderns, 20th century people to understand, really because of the last 70 years. It's something that I would call the supermarket syndrome. We all know that when we go to get food, it really does come from an animal or a plant, but deep down inside, we're not really sure of it, in the sense that when you go to get a steak, you get it out of the steak bin, and it feels like you get it from a steak machine. Um, but before they had refrigeration, you knew where you got that steak from. You took it out of an animal's flesh, an animal that you had raised, perhaps cared for. You killed it and ate it. That has produced uh, moral vegetarianism, but primitive planters wouldn't have been put off by that either. They were too wise for that as well. Plants are alive. Uh, plants grow and mature, and we'd only eat them by killing them. And if we don't kill them first, believe me, after you've eaten them, they're dead. So all life comes from death. All existence is placed within a biological, ecological niche, which we call the food chain. And that's a terrifying thought, that all of our life, all of our existence, is based on killing, on predation, on, on blood. As a result, it, we can't help be aware, traditional man, that no, suffering is the normal situation of life. All animals must kill or be killed, must eat, must destroy. Cyclical worldviews try to make this suffering bearable. They're a strategy to make this understandable, comprehensible, and allow us to continue to live our lives despite this sort of psychological terror. And it offers us three things. First, it assigns it a meaning. Why do we suffer? Why do these horrible events occur? Well, they're the result of a sin, a primordial sin that occurred in the first time. Someone killed the goddess that gave us food. And from her death came, say, the banana plant or the rice paddy. You might also learn that the reason we suffer is because we incorrectly engage in an archetypal ritual. And the gods are angry with us and punish us because we've acted in a unique historical way. It also offers us a potential remedy. If suffering occurs, we're having a drought, 
The solution is simple. Engage in a ritual. Do the rain dance. Placate the gods. Do whatever is necessary according to the archetypal patterns that produce the results you want. Now, many of you are going to be skeptical and say, well, yeah, but you know that doesn't really cause the rain. Yes, I know it doesn't, and you know it doesn't. But if you uh, don't know what causes the rain, and you're out there and your crops are withering, the will to go on, the belief that you might be able to bring rain could mean the difference between getting in a late harvest and starving to death. So the belief that there is some way to cure this might be the margin of survival. It has a tremendous pragmatic value. There's another uh, potential remedy, or better yet, uh, third offering or solve, which is the lunar conception, which most traditional cyclical uh, beliefs have which is because of the cyclical nature of life and death, that suffering and death are really never final. They're always followed by rebirth afterwards, by a next life. Uh, these religions are called lunar because they are generally identified with the moon, which wakes and wanes, dies, is eaten, and then reappears, is reborn three days later. We, too, have this archetype of rebirth. Christ suffered, died, was interred, swallowed by the earth, and then emerges, well, three days later, reborn. So, and that's the way of putting off the suffering when your child dies of, of some horrible disease. If you're a traditional culture, you say, well, this is a tragedy, but I know somehow his soul will be preserved. There will be a new birth. He will be back. Traditional cultures treat history as unique history, as meaningless. It is only with the Hebrew prophets that we begin to see history, unique developments, profane historical events as being profoundly meaningful, as in fact being a theophany, a revelation of God's will to man. In fact, the Hebrew prophets were acutely aware that these unique events were all calamities. They are all stories of various nations, cultures, and peoples coming in and conquering Israel and burning it to the ground over and over and over again. The prophets read these events as uh, negative theophanies, which is to say statements by God that his chosen people had failed to live up to their end of the bargain. They were, as it were, the sort of chiding that a parent gives a child who has acted poorly. As such, they place tremendous significance on this linear development in time, where linear history is the providential development of God's plan, an epiphany, a breaking through the uh, secular profane history of God's will and goals. This vision is extended into the future, obviously, with the uh, messianic eschatology of the Judeo-Christian prophets. Uh, the messianic prophets of uh, Judeo-Christianity see in the future an end to history, a final solution to the historical problem which will redeem all of the tremendous suffering that has occurred in the past. I want to point out that these messianic prophets are in fact a very rugged spiritual elite. We might best think of them as spiritual warriors, people who face tremendous suffering, calamity and decide to stare it right in the face and say, yes, it's real and it's meaningful and it's profound. That is a very difficult sort of psychological burden to bear. They have a weapon and that is faith. 
Yes, I know, would say uh, one of the Hebrew prophets. I know that all the history that has occurred to the Hebrew people since the founding of Israel is tragedy. But have faith. Israel will be refounded. The Davidic crown will return. The Davidic dynasty. And Israel will resume its place as a great nation among the world. And with Christians, that becomes then a cosmic uh, messianism where history will be redeemed, a last judgment will occur, and everything will be made perfect. Those of you who know your Old Testament know that it was an elite, not just rugged uh, rugged and spiritual, but an elite. It was not widely held. One of the things the prophets constantly note is that all of the uh, commoners among the Israelites are praying to what they call Astartes, which is Ishtar, and to the Baalim, to Baal, and the various other gods. All of these gods are archetypal, mythic gods of cyclical time. The peasants didn't have that faith. They found it too difficult to bear that sort of, of a weight. But that becomes a legacy for the West, which is unique, because all other civilized peoples, and here I want to leave behind your traditional peoples, use cyclical time to refuse history, to deny its reality. Time, or duration, as I've mentioned, threatens the cosmos. It threatens it because it gets old, it gets weak, it gets feeble. It degenerates. And the answer to that is what I've mentioned as the universal conflagration. And here I want to detail the notion of eternal return. The myth runs something as follows. The world is created out of, uh, by the will of a god, perhaps, um, the will of Brahman, Vishnu, whoever it may be. Then is instituted a golden age where the gods live on earth with men. Then comes a degener- uh, the next age where the gods communicate with men but don't live on earth. Then another age where the men simply live among themselves without the gods. And then a dark time. In India, it's called the Kali Yuga, the time of Kali, the destroyer. The time when things fall apart, where war, famine, plague, destruction predominate the world. And then finally, there is universal conflagration. And then the whole cycle starts all over, and every act that that went on in that first cycle is repeated over and over and over and over again. Well... One of the surprises to the Western consciousness is that we, in fact, live in the Kali Yuga. In every one of these conceptions of eternal return, we are in the dark time now. And that is a consolation. Why is that a consolation? First of all, it explains why things aren't exactly the way we would like them to be. Why the good die young, the rich get richer and the poor get children. Why uh, things are not as, as we would desire. And the reason is because it's a natural process, and it's unavoidable. And therefore, it's not our fault. And it's not something that we should blame ourselves for. We haven't failed. And it's not permanent. It won't last. It'll get a little worse, and then it'll start all over again. Precisely because it starts over and over, and and runs over and over again, these cycles are ultimately meaningless. They have no real content, no real import. And for that reason... They're bearable. For that reason, uh, Hindus in India could bear with the fact that they had been conquered by a fairly intolerant uh, Islamic uh, sect, which controlled them with a brutal mastery, followed by the British, because it's not really significant. It's not really real. What's really real is each person's individual relation with the cosmos through archetypal action and ritual. 
Which brings us finally to the question of the terror of history. Iliad's thesis is that profane history is so terrifying, is so intimidating, brutal, that the linear consciousness in the West has always had, at best, a limited and tenuous grasp. And for very good reasons. In fact, he suspects it might have an extremely limited future. First, he notes the survival of the myth of eternal return, even within the West. Popular Christianity is largely archetypal, particularly in the medieval epoch. It's largely cyclical as well, right? Its liturgical calendars and rites recreate over and over again the acts established in the first time in the strong time. The Christmas Mass, uh, Easter, uh, Mass on, on, on uh, however often it's taken, Communion. Medieval historical speculation was generally cyclical or at least had a cyclical component. There was always a three ages followed by the eschaton. It's really only from the 17th century onward that there's a clear push for a linear historical consciousness. Modern secular historicism, the view that history is profoundly meaningful, each event is unique, and there is no extra historical um, range of, of issues or perspectives or uh, reference point by which we can judge these epics um, offers us nothing to redeem the terror of history. It offers us no consolations whatsoever. It's that, spirit, it's that rugged spiritual elite without the, faith of pro the, the prop of faith. For example, how in our cyclical, secular, his, historicist, linear conception of time do we redeem ethnic cleansing, genocide, Stalin's purges, Mao's purges, two world wars. How do we make the, those pains, those, those tragedies, somehow uh, bearable? Because for us, they are profoundly meaningful. That's who we are. That's a heavy burden to bear. Now, he notes that Marxism does offer some help in this way, because Marxism does have an eschatological faith. All of this suffering is necessary because it will result in the world revolution, which will usher in human freedom, rationality, universal love, and uh, a time of unequal plenty for all and complete self-fulfillment. But that's because Marxism retains the faith of Christianity and secularizes it. Those who refuse to engage in that sort of secular, historicist, quasi-religion find the burden of uh, historicism too heavy. And Iliad notes two examples. One, T.S. Eliot, who when faced with this question, discovered the need to return to traditional Christianity, to faith. The other, James Joyce, who as I've mentioned before, saw history as a nightmare and was extremely taken. In fact, thought there was more truth in the notion of eternal return. And as we'll see, his particular version draws on uh, the topic of the next lecture, that of uh, John Battista Vico. So he sees the most sensitive secular souls of his time running away from historicism. And ironically, the modern historicist man is swept away in his own conceptions, at least, by forces that are vastly beyond his control. As we'll see with some of the historicist theories, the linear theories of time, History is made by forces which are greater than any individual. So man is still powerless. Each individual is still the victim of history, even the great man, even the most powerful. 
are victims of forces beyond their control. And history is a burden that they not only must carry, but a burden they cannot make. They don't make history. Forces beyond their control do. The forces of production, the movement of the world spirit, the growth of human culture. But precisely because they are said to be real, these forces, the terrors of history are all the more palpable. And the meaning attached to them becomes their ultimate reality. So in conclusion, Iliad argues that linear history can be confronted with, cannot be confronted without faith in a divine providence behind history. If we don't have that faith and continue to believe in a linear conception of time, we're going to experience Welchmers, world weariness, a sense of burden from the weight of the past. And his suggestion is, his prophecy, is that we'll wind up giving huge sums of money to psychologists and psychiatrists. Thank you very much.